Kaya FM podcast. The Law Report with Michael Mutsuning Bill on Kaya FM 95.9. A very good evening to you and welcome to The Law Report. My name is Michael McClenning. Bill, good to be with you today. Today we have a, a special show um, um, where, you know, from time to time we do profile shows where we talk to esteemed South Africans. And uh, this evening I have the privilege and the honor of speaking to Judge uh, Dennis Davis, whom you'd know very well either from judgments or failing that from your television screen. Um, where he's um, done lots of work on television spanning over many years. So it's a very great privilege for me to welcome on The Law Report, um, Judge Dennis Davis. Judge, uh, thank you very much for joining me on The Law Report. No, thank you for honoring me by inviting me. Well, you know, often when I do these interviews, it's, it's, it's a great fascination. And the, the question that always pops up in my mind is, you know, how, how do you start talking about such a such a long and elaborate journey? Um, and and the obvious answer always seems to be, well, in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, good point. So, when I read your profile and um, and and uh, the, it, it seems, you know, you you you've you've played in in four spaces. And and not only have you played in four spaces, but I think you've you've played leadership roles in four different spaces. Uh, one is television, two is academia, and three is in the judiciary. But that's not where it started. At uh, at, at some point, um, you were um, an advocate. You 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 were admitted at some point. So maybe let's just talk to you know. So you've got these four spaces in which you've existed, and not only that, and you've excelled in. And and I'd like to examine the makings of that, how it all started, and and perhaps talking about your life, how it began. Thanks, Michael. Um, 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 well, let me let me sketch that. Um, you know, it's an interesting question. Of course, if you're a white South African like me, unquestionably you had advantages that nobody else had in the country. And I think one needs to acknowledge that, realize that, and that becomes rather important in fashioning a life right from the beginning. Mm. But I, I can say that, that in my case, in terms of the um, the white community and more particularly the Jewish community from where I come, uh, if it is possible to say this, um, I came from sort of Jewish working class stock, which was kind of unusual. I'll explain in a moment. Unusual because um, most of the Jewish community uh, where I lived, which was in Cape Town, were either in business or in the professions or medicine or whatever the case. My mm. father was a major mechanic, mm. and my mother was a typist. And your mother I was that? Say, she was a typist at a law firm. Mm. Um, typist. So, yeah. so what I what I'm saying is that that I was quite acutely aware from an early stage of the class differences, mm. not the race ones. I accept that. Mm. Um, that 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 it, that that itself um, came to me because I went to a Jewish day school. I heard Celia in Cape Town, that's where they sent me, where I certainly realized the class differences between people who had fancy motor cars and after had a very, very old car that barely went uh, and only went because my father was a motor mechanic. And I, and I can imagine the mechanics are famous for their cars, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Well, my dad was a very old car. They taught me to drive and they'd be grateful for that. He never taught me how to fix a car, which was worse, because he was determined that I shouldn't become like him. Um, you know, it's really weird. I wish I, he had taught me. Anyway, 
the point was that um, at a Jewish day school like mine, um, one of the things that was drummed into us, of course, was the, the history, um, Jewish history, and particularly the Holocaust mm. and, and not the Nazi Germany. Remember, I was at school in the 1960s, which meant that was less than 20 years after yes. the end of the Second World War, especially yes. in the memory of people who were teaching me. And that, there were photographs of of the Nazis uh, essentially arresting you know, small children. Mm. And I remember so distinctly, you know, um, my mother worked in the center of the city and um, we didn't have any domestic help. So because she had typically Jewish mother, she insisted that I don't have lunch in the office. And the reason why I mentioned this is because it was in Adley Street in Cape Town. And I remember many times seeing police brutally assault, as a small child, brutally assault um, black people who were clearly, uh, presumably, allegedly in breach of the influx control rules. Mm-hmm. And that stayed with me. And it didn't take a rocket scientist to to essentially equate that with what had happened to my own community during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, those two features, if you wish, um, a sense of, of not coming in a white perspective, although I can see then you can get black people I was very good with, um, and, 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 and the history, but it really shaped my, my early life. And by the time I got to university of Cape Town, where I, where I did study law, I really wanted to be a psychiatrist, but medicine wasn't for me. And um, so I landed up by doing law. Um, and w- w- at, law, at law school, I certainly began to essentially realize that those two particular perspectives that had come from my early childhood were now playing an increasing influence. So that certainly by the time um, I got to my final year at university, I think that I had certainly by then uh, assumed, if you could call it, a Marxist perspective of the world. It was certainly quite prevalent there. Hmm. And if I could add one other thing which was very influential, and oddly enough played a role when I had my altercation with Barney Katana and we engaged and made up, and of course the house respected him, but we created the icon some many years ago, I pointed out to him afterwards that in 1970, my first year as a student at the University of Cape Town, I had attended a very famous seminar where he and Steve Biko had basically engaged with Mises and was taking the view that white liberals couldn't tell blacks what to do and in fact began to introduce the concept of black consciousness. Mm. That had an enormous influence on me. It's the only time I ever met Biko. An enormous influence of me as an 18, 17 and 18 year old. And all of that combined meant that by the time I got to final year, I realized that to a large degree, ordinary law, um, just being an ordinary lawyer in a law firm was really not for me. And um, and I really wanted to get into academic life, uh, because I, I should say this, there were only two or three things that a lawyer who is progressively minded could do when I came out of law school in 1975. You could, you could uh, if you were lucky enough, um, go to one of the few progressive law firms because the Legal Resources Center, it only started shortly thereafter, so that wasn't the case. And mm. um, you could, as some of my sort of heroic comrades did, drift into the trade union movement, mm. or thirdly, you could go into academic life and make your contribution there. And in order to get into academic life, because I had been, to be perfectly frank, um, um, not exactly a good boy in terms of the establishment of my faculty, uh, although I did very well in my time, I didn't get any bursaries. 
So I had, in order to go and study overseas, I was relying very much on my own money. I mean, I'd gone to university on Bursley because I took my, my, my parents couldn't afford it. So the result was that when I got um, out of law school, I thought I had to get myself a job where I can save sufficient money to, uh, to, uh, to go overseas and, and study this easier again because the land was worth a lot more than it is today. And to cut a long story short, the best job I could get, which ironically in many ways played a massive role in my life, was I went to work for the old neutral and I learned to become a tax consultant. Hmm. And, and after two years as a tax consultant, the university needed a tax teacher. And that's how I got a job at the University of Cape Town in 1977, um, which is where my academic career began. And of course, it didn't take very long, even though I kept on teaching tax, which I've certainly been happy to do, um, to move into more politically orientated legal topics, such as labor law and legal philosophy. Um, and you're right, uh, I then got admitted to the bar, I think, in 1979. But my practice was a central tax, and to some extent, labor law. Mm. No, that's where, that's where it started. I mean, you've said so many things, and, and one of which I want to touch on, where you say at the school that you went to, this the the events of the Holocaust were were impressed upon, you know, you guys as as pupils then, and I and I wondered whether you understood the reasons why the school was so determined to drill down that part of Jewish history. And and where I'm going with this question is is if if you understood what the objective was, do you think that as regards the black experience with apartheid and col- uh, colonialism, do you think that we had a a a a I guess a a a vision or an objective of how do we use our history to achieve whatever end? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, I, can, I can answer that in two ways. Uh, um, at the same time at the school, we had a very remarkable teacher. He's worth naming because he deserves to be named. Mm. You know, often you don't recognize people who had a big influence on our lives. His name was Mark Cohen, and he was strange enough, a Hebrew teacher in the name, but in, 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 my, in, my, in my standard seven-year university, for some reason he taught English. And we spent an entire year discussing Cry the Beloved Country. Mm. And whilst it is true that when you look at that book now, in 2021, of course it's a very liberal text, mm. uh, which has serious problems attached to it. But put yourself in 1965 as a 13, 14-year-old, studying a book which was certainly not available at the public schools and the, national, and the Christian national education. Mm. And we spent a whole year, and to his great credit, he essentially broadened the scope of the book to talk about, locate the book in terms of South African politics. So there we were, 13 or 14 years old, actually talking about the tragedy of apartheid South Africa. And then, in 1966, I went on a school trip to Israel, mm. where we bought, a number of us, a banned book by Brian Bunting called The Rise of the South African Reich, um, which paralleled Nazi Germany to much of what was going on in apartheid, certainly pre-1939, mm. pre-extermination pre period, in other words, in the early period. And of course, it didn't take a genius to kind of make those links. Did the school deliberately do that? I certainly think Mr. Cohen was determined to give us a political context which we otherwise wouldn't have. But no, I think their purpose was a different one in the main, it always has been a different purpose, which was essentially to look inward. That, that it was a contradiction in terms, because whilst 
the school education looked inward, in a sense, looking after the interests of the Jewish community. There were sufficient teachers there, and the principal too, who sort of understood the dialectic of looking outward at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and although they never drew the links directly, except as I want to suggest when we studied Pride and Labrick Country uh, in Standard 7, and those links to, you know, questioning kids who were now being taught to be critical became fairly apparent. Just to go back to what Steve Biko stood for, which was, you know, when he spoke about white liberals, he says that you go and you enjoy your white beaches and then come back to the township and preach to us. And and I'm just trying to put that and distinguish between different, I guess, groupings of, of white people. There's, there's obviously the Jewish the the Afrikaans and then the English at the time. What is it about your Jewishness that made you and and others like you? Because there were quite many. Yeah. Um, um, you know, I think I think I mean I I don't have any sort of statistical backup for this, but there's a a, a, a greater number of Jewish people that supported the struggle relative to, um, you know, Afrikaans, etc. What is it about your Jewishness that made you and others like you not enjoy the beach fully? That's a question, Michael. I think the answer is a a number of answers. I was a slightly unusual case. Interesting enough, I was on a seminar just the other day with L.D. Sachs, and we were talking about this, that's obviously being Jewish too. He came from an entirely different Jewish background to mine, in the sense that I, I had gone to a Jewish day school, I'd had a Jewish education, I studied the tradition, I studied the Talmud with a rabbi after I came out of school, um, and in a sense to this day, um, and, you know, fairly steeped within that tradition. I know the only other Jew, in, I think in South Africa, who has, in a sense, broadly my politics and uh, a, a deep knowledge, probably even deeper than mine, on matters Jewish as Stephen Friedman, who's well known. Um, so we were slightly unusual, in Stephen and I, because we were in both, as it were, the tradition and outside. But I do think, even for those Jews, you, you are talking about the broader um, uh, activists, mm. there was something about the history. There was something about, you could draw a series of conclusions. You could either say that what had happened in the Holocaust to the Jewish community and to others uh, at the hands of the Nazis essentially meant that you worried about your own community and didn't worry about anybody else. The world is uh, owed you a living. Mm-hmm. Or you could say, draw the universal lessons, which is um, that, that in fact, um, all should be treated with equal concern and respect and that the history taught you that. Many years before the Holocaust, Rosa Luxemburg, the famous Marx, Jewish Marxist, had said, it's not that I'm not concerned about Jewish issues, but the truth is, I've got, I don't have enough space to only worry about Jewish issues when I've got to look at civilization as a whole. And I think for many of the Jews who were prominent in the struggle, that broader ethos is particularly important in one way or the other. And of course, I'm terribly proud of the fact, not from an ethnocentric point of view, but I am proud of the fact that somewhere along the line, it is true that every white person who was at the Rania trialist um, uh, when Mr. Mandela et al. were tried, every, every white trialist is Jewish. Yeah. And so something in and that, that stands out. 
Yeah, and I'm I'm not proud. I'm, I'm not going to ethnocentric say, ah, oh, we were better than you. Not in the slightest. <laughs> but it does it does seem to me that, uh, that your question is a good one, that that tradition in some way or another spoke to people. And, you know, it's terribly important that we realize that. I mean, because it seems to me that's one of the things that's missing in South Africa is that that, you know, you should learn from history so that when there has been oppression of your group or a group of which you suffered, then that broader universal uh, commitment should in sense be with you for the rest of your life. Could it be also that in white South Africa, as a Jewish man, there were certain tables in which you couldn't sit? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I came out, you know, there used to be, I mean, it's very interesting. Um, many years, um, uh, a few years ago, I was presiding in a Labour Appeal Court case, and my two colleagues were Judge uh, King's Lawview and John Shlopey. And uh, uh, we were in Durban, and, King, uh, and, and King's Lawview, being, being, um, being from Durban, took us to the Durban Club. And when we went in, I said to, to the two, uh, my two colleagues, uh, who were somewhat amused until I explained it to them, you do realize that 20 years ago, none of us would have been allowed in here. Hmm. Um, you know, and they looked at me and I explained that many of these clubs didn't uh, didn't allow Jews in either. So yes, there was that sense of exclusion. We're and not we're not going to give we're not going to give Jewish people the status of previously disadvantaged. Yeah. We are not previously disadvantaged. We were advantaged. But it's precisely because we were advantaged on the one hand. And understood and understood to some extent um, the idea that you weren't quite the same. Yeah, that it irritates me enormously. In fact, that's not a long word. Angers me enormously that there are many members of my own Jewish community who do not draw the obvious lessons. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah, speaking no, no, to Judge uh, Dennis Davis, um, and um, we we profiling um, the judge. Um, we getting to 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 understand the man behind what you might have seen in in judgments, what you might have seen in newspapers or even television. I want to take a break, and when we come back, we continue our conversation. The Law Report on Kaya FM ninety five point nine. Welcome back to the Law Report. I'm still speaking to uh, my guest, uh, Judge uh, Dennis Davis. And um, before we went on the break, we'd, we'd really just covered a very, um, what I consider to be a very interesting conversation around just the, the, the time and space of being Jewish and coming up from university um, six, 60s or so um, during that time. And obviously juxtaposing it to, you know, various other times and various other people. So um, I want to I, I want to just hop along, um, Judge, if I may. Yeah. Um, there, 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 there is there is obviously something before I hop along that I'm, I'm tempted to explore further. You, you, you mentioned that in in this experience, you started to identify with the Marxist theory, which mm-hmm. which is obviously something which is very central to our politics. In fact, in fact, the whole wars were waged <laughs> in, yeah. in, in other parts <laughs> because of this whole debate of, of Marxism, etc. M- maybe just, just, you know, talk to me about that. Uh, well, you see, I think that, that, that the question was liberals thought mm. that 
you know, uh, masons ultimately incompatible with capitalism, mm-hmm. and then it's so uncrudifying, but I mean in simple terms, and that and that capitalism would ultimately work itself pure, and mm-hmm. that race would be eroded from the system. Mm-hmm. Um, Marxists thought, uh, broadly speaking, drawing from a very classic article that uh, Harold Wolpe, um, who was one of the ANC intellectuals throughout his life. Um, Harold Wolpe had written back in 72 in which he had linked the idea of apartheid to capitalist development that the idea of racism uh, was linked to the notion that you have a large surplus of cheap labor which essentially could could be used in the mines mm. and in other parts of, uh, um, of the country and that to a large degree you couldn't separate the two capitalism and racism were inextricably linked and that got people like myself. I was a small fry in a very um, interesting group who were far, who had masses of stuff over a fairly lengthy period in the 70s and 80s, and uh, uh, we were essentially broadly talking about the linkages uh, between apartheid and capitalism, and more than that, the fact that South Africa had to be explained both in class and race terms, mm. that the class and race overlapped. By the way, I still believe that to be true. A, a very interesting thought um, that I had, particularly in relation to what you are saying, and I just want to explore it with you, where you say that there is a very strong relationship between capitalism and racism. And and and, and, and I don't know if I'm adding or it's a but um, to, 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 to that theory, but I find that if you take South Africa today, we almost... And 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 I say this, you know, it's 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 a considered view. Um, it's not sort of one that I make recklessly. I think we are a nation which is, by and large, directionless. We have no common vision. We we don't know what we meant to be doing as as a combined people. And and what I find things like racism have been good at doing. You know the, the 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 good that comes out of it is it 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 allows you to galvanize a people. Once somebody believes that they are better than somebody else, it seems an easy way for them to behave better. So so you know the, you you are better than this people. And when you look at the fruits of oppression, racism everywhere, whether it's Germany, I mean Germany today. Is is right up there. In fact, you know, if 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 the eurozone was to have a head, it'd be Germany, right? Um, mm-hmm. South Africa, whites, um, right up there, and America, slavery. You can you, you you can pretty much traverse the world. And and I and I guess for 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 the English or the British, it was different because they just pretty much oppressed everybody. Um, that's not in their own country where they could. Uh, <laughs> but it, it looks to me that that this idea of you are better than somebody else propels them to actually behave better. And once you then use that, you're better than somebody else, but then this is your direction and this is where you need to be as a people. It, it seems to me a very successful way to get people to unite and 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 behave in a particular direction. You are number one. You are the greatest. Your thoughts on that theory? Well, I think you're right. If I start from the beginning, it's interesting you say that. I think we are directionless. 
And I think that, that if you took our constitution as a starting point, its very idea, inherent in everything, its very idea was in fact the reconstruction of South African identity. Mm. It was essentially to say that the identities, and I use that clearly, um, which we had had beforehand, mm. were completely destructive of the South African community. Mm. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be proud of your heritage and me of mine. We've been speaking about that. Mm. But it does mean that we actually look at ourselves and say, we are in this boat together. Mm. And either we're going to, uh, this boat is going to float or in fact it's going to sink. And we haven't got there. We haven't got there at all. Mm. And it does seem to me that the real conversation in South Africa is how do we reconstruct that identity mm. so that, yes, we are all better for it. Mm. That, in fact, all of us um, can say there's something special about being South African. We say that, but we say it from different perspectives. And there's very little sharing. Um, and so the, the answer is, you know, we've not had an intelligent debate about race. Um, race is a very important factor to find so much of this beautiful allocation of resources in society. But it doesn't explain everything. It certainly doesn't explain rent-seek because it transcends race. And it certainly doesn't justify conduct of a certain kind. Mm-hmm. So we've really got, I think, very seriously, to think through how can we have a kind of debate which actually then leads us into precisely what you're talking about, a relatively cohesive nation which actually acts at its best, not at its worst. And it's possible, but we are a long way away from that. We had an inkling of that when Mr. Mandela was around. Yeah. But we've got a lot of work that we've gone backwards, not forwards. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> there's so many things. Um, I, I think the frustrating thing for me, and, and maybe just as as I move along to my next question, the frustrating thing is, it's one thing to find yourself in, in, in terrible circumstances as a country, um, generally, but it's quite another to find yourself in those very same circumstances when the potential is just so enormous. Um, so I think for me, if, if I was you know, to take my last breath now for the country, I, I, I think I, I, would, I would die a very sad man. Yeah. <laughs> back, to, <laughs> back to you. Yeah, I, I don't want to live in a country Mm. where people are living on the margin. Mm. And Michael, I really don't. I mm. don't want to live in a country where the police kill Nathaniel uh, uh, Julius, mm. a, a, a boy who, who had serious uh, uh, physical problems and, and they killed him. I mean, you know, when that happened, I really, I, I cried because I thought to myself, this is not the country I want to live in for me or my family. And I have to say that I found really interesting, I can just make the point, which has troubled me, is that in America when George Floyd died, mm. Black Lives Matter emerged. And in fact, many white people, to their credit, came out and joined black people and saying, Black Lives Matter. Mm. I saw very little of that in South Africa in total. Mm. The cause Nathaniel Julius and others were killed. Mm. Where was the outrage from everybody? Not just white people, I'm saying everybody. Mm. You know, we need to actually say, we can do a lot better. And we've got the potential to develop early. This country can do remarkable things because it's frankly got remarkable people. Mm. People with, with, I mean, it's true. We've got people of great patience, great, great fortitude, great talent, but we're not using. Mm. And we got capital. You, you, yes. you, you hear yes. that businesses are sitting on capital that they're not deploying. No, 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 lots and lots. Mm. You look at the balance sheets because mm. there's no confidence now. Uh, you know, uh, we can talk about why 
that the South Sudanese who did right, all of that should be used to reconstruct our country so that in a sense the image that the constitution had for us is something that becomes much more of a reality. Now, back to <laughs> back to the, 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 the timeline. So now you you early careers you take up academia because it's it's where you believe your purpose is better served. How does that then and and I, and I think you 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 do that from from about 1977 odd all yes, the way yeah uh, uh, all the way and as democracy knocks on our doors talk to us at that you know leading up to that point because what's fascinating about about you is that you then become part of the team and you are not just in one team various teams that are appointed by our first president um and i and i deliberately didn't say democratic president um our first president who who then says you know i want you to work on this law electoral laws tax laws competition laws what was it about what your work and your standing and your disposition that made you the right man I think I was lucky. Uh, partly, I think at that time, very different time to today. I think um, you know, uh, people and, and 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 Mandela certainly in the Mandela era was people looked at what your record was. Mm. In other words, one of the things that I learned in, in in helping in the trade union movement is that black workers would look at you when you first came to advise, etc., very suspiciously, thinking, "I wonder if this person's a police spy." Mm. They soon worked out, because they were really smart, that you were on their side. And when you were on their side, it didn't bloody matter what the color of your skin was. Mm-hmm. You were with them. And they embraced you in all sorts of ways, mm-hmm. which is why many of us thought uh, that it was perhaps easier than we realized to get to a non-racial society. But it did mean that when democracy, well, democracy was about to dawn, um, and we were still in that interim period, it meant that the ANC and the liberation movement could draw on a whole lot of people who came from a variety of backgrounds, you know, mm-hmm. hugely talented black people and talented white people, uh, all of whom had the same agenda to make South Africa into a serious democracy. And why, I, and I was, of course, part of that broad um, community. My one difference, which was lucky for me, was that I had been a commercial. I spoke about the tax side. And although I'd been doing all the political work, there were very few left-wing tax lawyers, right? Very few left-wing um, uh, progressive um, uh, people mm. who had any knowledge of, um, of broad commercial. You must understand that for the vast majority of black lawyers, they had been discriminated against egregiously. So the t- to the extent that they, that they transcended all the awful obstacles that were put in their place by apartheid, they were still never given the kind of briefs as they were advocates or the working clients in the commercial areas that whites did. And so there you had me, in a sense, and that's true, benefiting from this egregious system because mm-hmm. there was, at that point, of course it's not true any longer, but at that point, there were so few people of progressive bent who understood anything about the commercial area that it was perfectly obvious that the ANC were going to say, someone like myself, help us with the tax policy. Mm-hmm. And in relation to the electoral law, and uh, uh, the reason I got into that is because in 1991, I took over the Center for Applied Legal Studies from John Dugan, one mm. of the heroes of the human rights struggle. And that institution 
had amongst it a whole range of remarkable people. So in that institution, broadly mm. at that time, there was Holton Pedel, there was Fink Hayson, um, there was Paul Benjamin, there was Tully Modern Senna, they were all there. Hmm. Um, you know, in that institution broadly at that time, and most of us were then being used, as it were, uh, in the Cadessa period, and they, they just put me into the electron laws and said, you better help out, I wasn't an expert, I had to become one. But it, it was because I was trusted to essentially um, look at things from a, a progressive democratic point of view that the liberation movement said you must use this expertise to the extent that it's available to us. So earlier on, and I think in the preamble to this discussion, if just just if you've just tuned in, I'm having a conversation with Judge Dennis Davis, and uh, and when I introduced when I introduced him, I, I mentioned that he'd sort of played in four spaces: TV, which is broadcasting, academia, um, law, and also in the judiciary. But but there's something that I ask, and and I, I would obviously have an interest in this because I'm I'm a lawyer. And, and 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 judge that question is when you take for example issues of tax somebody would then call themselves a tax lawyer but you seems to to have done so much work in the tax including writing some of the tax laws but also in the same breath in competition and in this and in that and in that and I think often as lawyers we ask ourselves the question and we are asked by clients what do you specialize in and when I answer that question I often say well, I just choose what I don't want to do, and I do the following. Um, and and it, when as I answer, I, I I get the sense that I I lose their confidence because I'm, my list just goes on and on. And just as 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 somebody who's played, I mean, tax is you know, tax is not only complex in and of itself; it's complex. Um, because even tax lawyers distinguish themselves as a VAT specialist, income tax, you know, international, blah, 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 it goes on. So how, how do you manage to have such a strong and, and leading role in so many spheres of law, which are, to many, quite specialized, and then also deal with the normal matters that, come, that came to you whilst you were at the bench? Okay, that's an interesting question, and I'll tell you why, because to a large degree, uh, two things happened to me which, which were very fortuitous. One is because I, I taught law and I was required to teach a whole lot of stuff outside of tax. Of course, I gravitated to uh, legal theory, and I'll come back to that, the significance of that in a moment, mm. and of course to labor law, because those are the two areas as where tax was a sort of way in, mm. but the real political beef was in labor at that time, mm. and, to, and to some extent in kind of puzzling out, which was Marxist legal theory, or broader progressive legal theory. Mm. So what happens to me um, is that when, uh, when, when democracy begins to dawn, obviously as I've spoken about the tax, then what happens is that because, because I've done all this legal theory, two things emerge. Um, one is that, um, that I've done, I've majored in economics, I've studied uh, uh, in a serious economics. Mm. And that meant there were very few lawyers who had done that. And in some of the legal theories they've done, the law and economics school mm. had been taught. So it wasn't a long leap to move from that to competition. And when mm. Kevin Mannell, when he was the Minister of Trade and Industry, wanted some people, again, people from, as it were, a side that he felt was going to give him reliable progressive advice. But, you know, there were people like David Lewis, who was an economist uh, and had been in the trade union movement, and myself, who 
essentially, strange enough, had done some work for David Zinian, um, uh, but, but, but essentially had a non-economics background, it was perfectly clear that he was going to rely to some extent on us. So that's how competition came about. And then we had to work bloody hard to become a serious expert in it. And one's background helped, but that was how that happened. In relation to labor law, without teaching the damn thing, had done some practice and had talked in it for years and years and years. Um, and that, and then early on in my judicial career, uh, Sandeen Kobo, who was then the acting uh, judge president of the Labor Appeal Court, invited me there. My judge president refused to release me. But a year or two later, when Judge Zonda took over from Judge Kobo, then I, um, I did go there. So that's how that came about. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and the constitutional law stuff was because if you were teaching legal theory, you taught constitutional theory. Mm. Very few people in South Africa had. So by the time the constitution emerged, I was just fortunate enough to be one of the people who was well acquainted with American and Canadian constitutional law, which suddenly became very important as we carved our own constitution. So I've just been incredibly lucky, Michael. Mm. <laughs> or hardworking, in which which is something we'll, well talk about. Well, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> you, can't, you can't just <laughs> Let's take a break, Judge, and when we come back, I'm continuing my conversation with Judge Dennis Davis. The Law Report on Kaya FM 95.9. Welcome back to The Law Report. Um, I'm still in conversation for the last 20 minutes um, with uh, Judge uh, Dennis Davis. And um, I, I'm worried that 20 minutes is simply not enough to traverse all the issues that I that I hope to have covered um, come 9 o'clock. But, but I'm going to give it a good shot nevertheless. So, I mean, w- when we talk about all of these things that you're doing, and... And, I, and I'm sure this question is not for the benefit of lawyers only. It's for the benefit of most professionals, most business people who are trying to make a success out of their lives, who are trying to build, you know, play their role in building this country. Family. Where, where's family in all of this? Family is really very important. Um, my wife, Claudette, has been absolutely heroic in putting up with all my nonsense. Um, and I've got two fantastic kids. Mm. Um, unfortunately, both of them are, are lawyers, which really upsets me. My daughter, actually, I think, you know, was fantastically talented at art, but decided, um, had a bad experience at school in that particular fashion. I'm sure many people uh, will, uh, will resonate with many. And she went into law. She's not doing a PhD at King's. And my son, um, he, I'm very proud of him too, just like I am of her because he's going off to clerk at the Constitutional Court this year, hmm. the Chief Justice. Um, so they're very, you know, I have incredibly close relationships with my wife and my children. Um, you know, um, we learn one thing about kids and family, is it doesn't take very long for them to tell you what an idiot you are. And I have to tell you that once your children become lawyers, they have great glee in pointing out one when you get overturned and two why you're wrong. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> but I mean, you know, to be honest, I, I, I you know, um, uh, we are a pretty close unit. We, we don't come from, I don't come from a large family. I have one sister um, and a niece. So we don't really have a large, my, my parents have been, and we don't have a large family. So, you know, our intimate family is, is very important. Sadly, my daughter's in London, my son's in Johannesburg. So we've suffered as well uh, from that, like many others have. But, um, you know, there's, you know, there's a very close family. Uh, my daughter's a fanatical Arsenal supporter, whereas my son and I, if Manchester United lose, it ruins our week. 
Well, you had a good week. You had a good start to this week. Oh, we're in a very, I'm in a very good mood now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he, he, here's something that 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 uh, you know, I, I I was thinking as you 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 were talking about your kids. So you're leaving the profession in in one way, and and I fear yeah. with all of these attacks on the judiciary, your children, and and certainly for for the balance of my career. Um, we we might have to contend with a very different judiciary and a very different legal system, because I sense, and I'm not sure if it's a it's it's you share the the sentiment that there is an attack on the judiciary. What's your views? And if 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 there is an attack, and 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 do you think that attack is justified? You know, it's an interesting question. Of course, there's an attack. Mm. Um, and, I, and no, I don't think it's justified in the hell. Look, let me let me say this. Judges make mistakes. We all do. I've certainly made a number in my career, and other judges do. That's why we have appellate bodies. And in fact, appellate bodies make mistakes. Constitutional court makes mistakes. But that's the name of the game mm-hmm. in every in every system. But by and large, I'm really proud of the fact that over the 23 years that I've been on the bench, um, we've done okay. And I'm very proud of many of many of my colleagues. And I think that during the state capture era, mm. that there were many colleagues, many of blunt black colleagues who clearly came under significant pressure, political pressure, and did magnificently. You know, when people complain, I say this is the best judiciary we've ever had, ever, because mm. of, um, you know, what has been done. Now, that doesn't mean that that includes all, but it, as an institution. And yes, it is under attack, but it's under attack in the main from rent seekers. It's under the attack from people who benefited from the hollowing out of constitutional institutions. Mm. And by the way, that's not only true in South Africa. What has happened here is exactly what Donald Trump tried to do in America and still tries to do, at least his lunatic fringes do. It's true in Turkey, it's true in Hungary, it's true in Brazil, and to some extent even in the United Kingdom. There is a genuine attack on constitutional guardrails in many parts of the world, and populism seeks to take over. In the guise of law, but it's not at all that. So yes, it's your generation, and to the extent that I'm still around, um, you know, for some years to come, hopefully, it's certainly all our tasks to actually realize that with all its imperfections, this is the best possible system we're ever going to have. And the judiciary does need support as an institution. Um, it definitely does. Uh, its own leadership will obviously have to be critical to this. And of course, that too is an interesting question because we do know that the present Chief Justice's term expires in September. So who takes over is going to be a matter of major moment. But all of that um, uh, cannot, they can't, judiciary can't on its own function without civil society at large realizing its importance and defending it. And that's why I was particularly encouraged to see that a new, you know, a new group of people came forward, a very eminent group, you know, uh, to protect and promote the Constitution. The more, the better. So you, you referenced the United States and um, what it had to deal with, with as regards Trump. And it seems to have survived. It seems to have triumphed. Yes, yes. Will we? Lucky, yeah. Will we? Well, I think we will. Look, you know, 
I think it was once upon a time, Jan Smuts is rec- not that he's my intellectual hero, but it is an interesting thing. Many, many years ago, I apparently said South Africa neither the worst nor the best ever happens. Um, we've been speaking about that earlier. But I do think we'll probably survive. And you know, I was interviewing Rudy Cloddy the other day uh, for a Daily Maverick program, and she made a very interesting point to me, which is that Twitter is not South Africa. Mm. And that we, in a sense, are obsessed by the Twitterati and not by the whole country. I think we will survive. Because I think the vast majority of people realize that the broad framework within which we now operate is too important not to survive. And, you know, it's interesting to reflect that during the Zuma period, how many people of all kinds came out in the streets to actually protest what was going on? I think we will survive, but I have no doubt about it that it's going to be made difficult for us. And we're going to have to sustain significant attacks on the guardrails of, of democracy, on the courts, on other institutions which essentially protect democracy. Absolutely. And I, but I, I'm still sure that the vast majority of people really are not going to assure this kind of naked populism uh, and opportunism, uh, which is trying to exploit what are difficult conditions at present. You, you know, and, and, and here I'd really like your help. When I, when I in, my, in my career, I, I have had many situations where somebody is coming to you after having lost the case, say, help me mm-hmm. take it further. Mm-hmm. And from time to time, the prospective client would say, I think there was something wrong. You know, I think that judge took a cut or, or you know, uh, or, or his hands were greased and that magistrate this. And, and without even investigating the fact, I have jumped to the defense of our judges and have jumped to the defense of of our magistrates because I have appeared before many of them and I don't even remember myself because sometimes, you know, I wouldn't jump to the defense of a of a South African police because I have yes. <laughs> experience. Yes, I agree. <laughs> but as a lawyer, um the the decorum, the respect, the the line that we walk, even when we know each other, even even in a disciplinary hearing where uh, somebody's a chair, if I'm the chairperson of a disciplinary hearing, I will not cross the line. And 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 the question that I want to ask you, as somebody who's been a judge for as long as you have, would my would my would every occasion that I've jumped to the defence of the of the judiciary. Was it justified, or, or should I have said, "But look into the fact. Tell me the fact," or, or, or my blanket defence was it justified? I suspect the answer to that is what people are giving as an answer, Michael, to why they're stopping the J and J vaccine when it's six people who get blood clots and twenty million have taken me, <laughs> have taken the vaccine. Mm. Uh, meaning, you know, I can't tell you that in every single case, you know there's been the impeccable behavior. It would be highly surprising to me in any institution mm-hmm. where there weren't one or two um, dubious apples. But I would say this, that you know, in, in 20 million cases, as it were, the overwhelming 99.999% of cases, there's no doubt in my mind that we have a judiciary of impeccable quality. Uh, meaning, I'm not saying every judge is a brilliant judge. I'm not saying, you know, uh, uh, I myself have made many mistakes in my career, and I, you know, and I'm sure clients have been disgruntled. You know, they say, "What the hell was that judge smoking?" Mm-hmm. When he came to that conclusion, mm-hmm. I made a mistake. 
Mm. Judges do make mistakes. Not the mistake, the, the, the corruption. Well, that's the point. I don't think judges are corrupt. I mean, I, I have never heard uh, mm. of anybody on the take. I've never seen it happen. Um, I'm not. Suge- I, I, I can't swear to it yes. because I obviously don't know, and I'm not prepared to do that. I mean, and I, I say if there are allegations now being made. They need to be examined. They need to be proved. They need to actually be dealt with properly. But I would say I would be highly surprised if if this affected more than a couple of people at most. I, I, I don't even know if there are those. But I'm just simply saying I'm just taking an ordinary statistical. Mm. Figure. But in the vast majority of cases, the disgruntlement is because judges have made mistakes. And the judges and the magistrates are under enormous pressure. Mm. An ordinary judicial function or a magistrate's function these are very badly resourced. Most of our, uh, most of our uh, computers, uh, our internet goes down for days on end. We don't have proper research materials other than in the Constitutional Court and to a lesser extent in the Supreme Court of Appeal. Uh, there are no clocks available to judges to assist. Hmm. We're not in a world as all situation. Judges are under incredible pressure to deliver judgments. Hmm. But they make mistakes, egregious mistakes perhaps, mistakes which would say to a client, how could that possibly be but for? Hmm. And the answer is it's not but for. It's just simply because the human limitations are such and the lack of resources that judges uh, encounter on a day-by-day basis, and magistrates even more, just uh, claim that. So yes, I think your defense is a justified one, and mm. it's one that I make consistently. I think we've got a, a very fine judiciary, we're lucky to have it, and so may long it may have lost. Hmm. <laughs> okay, that's assuring, and, and thank you for that. Sure. There, there, there's, there's talk of a probe. Do you think it's warranted? Do you think that that might because you know so there's there's things one gets in WhatsApp groups, and and more recently there's a there's a uh, an audio going around a a direct attack um, by a, by somebody very high ranking on on Judge President uh, uh, Mlab. And and I'm not sure if it's public knowledge, but I assume it is because I tend to get the I news know, I second last. And let me let me say mm. this about Judge President Malanda. Mm. I have a pious regard is perhaps not strong enough, mm. right? Mm. I am deeply admiring of Judge Malanda. I've sur- I've sat with Judge Malanda. I know uh, both in, as a head of court and in cases. Mm. He and I sat on the Sariti Commission um, a review together. Mm. He is a fantastic Judge President and a mm. great human being. Mm. I'm not surprised that there are attacks on Judge Malanda because he's a fiercely independent and hugely competent judge. Mm. And as I said to you, rent seekers will stop at nothing. They will stop at nothing to actually undermine judges in trying to do their job. Um, but now, unfortunately, if you get, for example, politicians to come along and say there were judges on the tape to mm. the Zondo Commission. Let them come uh, forward. Well, yes, but then yeah. I, I'd like them to come forward and name the judges. Yes. Uh, and then we can have a proper inquiry. Exactly. This kind of, sne- this kind mm. of sneaky nonsense where you literally uh, rubbish people um, in, in the nameless fashion without any substantiation. And let me say this. Very, I don't, I'm not on Twitter, so I don't know what the hell goes on there. Are you missing out, Judge? But, <laughs> I will, no, I'm not. It keeps my blood pressure at a, at a normal level, Michael. But of course, people tell me, and when I hear some of the stuff that's that, that's there, unsubstantiated rubbish yeah. about about judges, mm. about panels, about tribunals, mm. it's just nonsense. Uh, and uh, and quite frankly, much of it 
people should be hauled before um, um, you know the courts and basically be suspended for content, uh, sentence to contempt. And why don't we do that? Because I think has the time be. has the time not come for that? Because I think people are liberally. And and I'm not well, talking, you know, a, a random person. I'm talking very senior. No, I'm 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 I would do that. I would certainly do that. Uh, and I have uh, in my early career. The then Attorney General of Western Cape, Frank Kahn, uh, went onto the radio and slagged me off in nine certain terms, and I issued a contempt against him. And he had to get two silks. To, to represent him and he finally the folks advised him that he was in contempt mm. and he had to apologize fulsomely thanks to their uh, intervention the matter never went to court mm. but the point was I was prepared to pursue it not because I wanted to do that every day not at all it's not exactly I accept written criticism don't like it none of us do but it's part of the job but when you say attack somebody down a few days and, and, and in an unsubstantiated way call them a crook call them um, um, you know corrupt Mm. without any substantiation or say things which actually undermine the institution of the bench to attacking the judge, that's contempt. We've got to deal with that. All right. So I've got two more minutes, Judge, and, and, and I'd like to leave it to you to give us your parting shot. And well, it needn't be about this question around the judiciary. It can pretty much be whatever it is because I think this is, for us, an important show that anybody listening at home just would want to know what's randomly on your mind. What's, ra- what's randomly on my mind, Michael, is that I think we've got a great constitution in theory, mm. and that constitution has been translated into many areas which have changed the lives of many of people who were who subjected to the egregious forms of racism and sexism under the previous um, regimes. Mm. But I do think that for me, the most worrisome thing now is in the sense that we capacitate a state right across the board so that it can vindicate the constitutional promises. It's no good judges making orders which the state can't implement. So what is giving me a great deal of anxiety is to what extent are we now capable of actually delivering the water, the education, the housing, the general infrastructure to what I would regard as presently disadvantaged or historically disadvantaged. That's what keeps me up at night. What gives me hope is I think there are people of goodwill on all sides mm. who understand this, and I think we've reached an inflection point in South Africa at present in which people realize exactly what you and I have been talking about for the last while, and that it is very important to stand up and be counted. And the fact is that people, and I, for example, just now, and now doing work for SARS, I'm enormously encouraged by the, by the SARS staff, by the people there, incredibly dedicated from all sorts of backgrounds who have one thing in mind, to make SARS the best institution it possibly can. And that kind of spirit, I think, you find in many parts, and that's why I think we will, in fact, rise to the challenges which unquestionably are before us now. One of the, on SARS, one of the um, suggestions that you have, and, and, and you make the point that there's about only a mere 5,000 South Africans who declare yeah. tax above 5 million a year. 5 million, yeah. Mm. And and you suggesting that you know the your observations about you know cars out there and and homes out there indicate quite the opposite that uh, there shouldn't be five thousand there should be a great deal more. How yeah. far along is this conversation about lifestyle audits? Because I think it's been it's been the talk for a while, um, and and it seems to me that it, it it's sort of an, an a low hanging fruit as it were 
to say, uh, you know, you, you, you say you earn 35K, but you live in Clifton. Yeah, and you got a Ferrari, yes. Mm. The answer is that, remember, these are recommendations mm. which we made as the Davis Tax Committee mm. to the minister and to the commissioner. Mm. Um, and you'll notice that the minister took this so seriously that he's mandated SARS to do something about it which clearly SARS are going to do. How they would do it and how they operationalize that mm. um, is something which the commissioner can only answer, not me. Mm. Um, because I, I, I and my committee have made recommendations to this effect. It is for them to consider them. But I'm very encouraged by the fact that in the budget, the minister absorbed those. And in a sense, those are going to be dealt with, I assume, uh, in the manner in which the commissioner can. Let me say, the commissioner is doing a very fine job. In, in totally repurposing SARS, and I'm confident that 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 given the fact that these were undertaken given by the minister, that uh, you'll see some action coming in the near future. But about what it is, you have to ask the commission. That's um, Judge uh, Dennis Davis. Um, I was going to ask you how's retirement, but it doesn't sound like you you are yet to to be acquainted <laughs> with that yet. concept. <laughs> no, 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 not retired. Not yet. <laughs> Anyway, many, many thanks. I'm, I'm most indebted to you, uh, and I'm sure I speak for Afropolitans where when I say we, we really um, value your insight, your contribution to the country, but also the hour that you've taken to spend with us. Thank you, Judge. With pleasure. Take care. All the best. Thank you. Afropolitan, we're we'll back again next Wednesday. Good night. That's a fine term. I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> the Law Report with Michael Mutsuning Bill on Kaya FM 95.9. Kaya FM podcast. Go to kayafm.co.za for more.